0: Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, the best way to see a man's priorities in life is to see how he spends his money, what he invests in. And as we noted last week, most of our problems can be traced back to people, to personal relationships, and to money the way we use it, or wish we could use it. Well, Paul had practical advice to us on establishing, utilizing, and maintaining relationships. Now he has some very practical instructions concerning our investments. If we will allow him to be our financial advisor, the majority of our money problems will disappear. Because our first financial priority will be in making spiritual investments. We're continuing our study in Galatians, and in Galatians 6.6, Paul begins by telling us to invest in our teachers. Now, before you get too excited, and one way or another, he's not talking about a tax increase for education uh, or higher salaries for public or private teachers. His focus is on teachers of the Word. Galatians 6.6, 6, And let him who is taught the Word share all good things with him who teaches. Now, For some reason, I really like that verse. <laughs> Between the teacher and those who are taught, there is to be a sharing of good things. The word for sharing is koinonia, Christian fellowship. Paul is saying that there is to be a mutually beneficial relationship between teacher and student. Now, while the implication is that the teacher is sharing God's word, Paul doesn't specify the nature of the good things the student is to share it with his teacher. But there's a good chance he had material things in mind that he's saying, if your teacher shares spiritual things with you, you should share material things with him. And he does state that clearly in 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 14. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that Those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, when Paul went into a new town to preach the gospel, he didn't take anything from those to whom he was preaching. He didn't want them to question his motive for being there, so he supported himself through tent-making or allowed established churches to support him. In his writings, however, he did make it clear that those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. And as he made clear from his Old Testament references, contrary to what some might suggest, a paid ministry is not a modern concept. Those who preach and teach the Word are to be supported financially for doing so. Now, we do have to be careful here. The message is not for sale. So preachers must never view themselves as peddlers of the Word of God. They must never become salesmen of spiritual advice, nor for that matter, salesmen of Jesus. Preachers shouldn't even think of themselves as employees. They must not allow themselves to be hired by a church to say what people want to hear to, to tickle ears. And obviously, preachers shouldn't make getting rich in the ministry their goal. They must never seek financial gain by preying on the spiritually weak. All those details are laid out in the epistles. But Paul did make it clear that you have an obligation to pay your preacher. And this is good. Those who work hard at preaching are to be well paid. Nice verse. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, we read, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You not only mind being referred to as an ox in that verse. When Paul says that those who work hard at preaching are to be worthy of double honor. He's talking about their wages. Apparently, he thought faithful preachers should be well paid. And contrary to the thinking that used to be prevalent in churches, preachers aren't to be kept poor, so they will be humble and godly. Besides, who really wants to listen to a poor preacher? I'm certainly grateful that the elders of Chatham Christian Church have always been generous, and felt that the preacher's income should enable him to maintain a standard of living similar to that of most in the church. They've understood that if a preacher isn't paid well enough to provide adequately for his family and to be relieved of reasonable financial concerns, it's hard for him to do his job. In fact, Martin Luther said, it is impossible for one man both to labor day and night to get a living... And at the same time, give himself to the study of sacred learning as the preaching office requires. So you have an obligation to invest in your spiritual teachers. And it's a wise thing to do. If you freed a faithful student of the word from financial concerns, he will be able to feed you spiritually spiritually. He'll be able to be the kind of shepherd God desires for his people, the kind God told Jeremiah he wanted to provide. He said, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. If they're faithful to their calling, making a financial investment in your preacher and teachers of the word is a smart spiritual investment. But it's not the only way to invest in your spirit. Let's read on. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit shall from the spirit reap eternal life. Here we find the law of sowing and reaping. What you sow determines what you reap. It's based on natural law. What you plant is what grows. You don't plant corn and grow apples. The law of sowing and reaping has many applications in life. If you sow love and kindness, you'll most often reap peace. If you sow discord and strife, chances are you will reap conflict. We could come up with a multitude of examples. But the primary application of these verses has to do with the use of money in making spiritual investments. That becomes clear in a similar passage found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now this I say. He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul's talking about giving here. He's talking about the sowing and reaping of money in both passages. If we give bountifully and cheerfully, we will reap bountifully. God will bless us for being generous in our giving. Now, personal gain and greed for more should not be the motive for giving. When Paul speaks of a cheerful giver, he's not suggesting that we should get giddy thinking about the bountiful harvest that will soon be coming our way if we send in our $10. God may bless us financially for giving. And as we'll soon note, he does promise to open up the windows of heaven for us, but not all spiritual blessings are financial in nature. And reaping a fleshly reward is not the objective of making spiritual investments. In fact, Paul warns us about sowing to the flesh. He says if we invest in the flesh we'll reap from the flesh. And he says, God will not be mocked. He knows the motive behind our giving, even our giving to religious causes. If our motive is fleshly, we will reap from the flesh. We will reap corruption. And if we're actually spending our money on things that feed our fleshly nature, that feed our black dog, we will reap from the flesh. If we spend our money on movies and books and music and games and activities that feed our lower nature, it will corrupt us. So we invest in the Spirit if we want to reap from the Spirit. We give with a proper motive, and we invest in the things that will give a spiritual return. If we spend our money on things that feed the spirit, that feed the white dog, the fruit of the spirit will grow. If we invest in things that feed the spirit, like inspirational books and uplifting music and positive activities, we will reap, he says, eternal life. Now, that's not to suggest that we buy eternal life by spending money on Christian books and attending Christian concerts. Only that if we'll invest in things that feed the spirit, we will feed what's been given to us in Christ. We must make it a priority to invest in the things that are spiritually uplifting for ourselves and for our families. So we have an obligation to invest in teachers of the word. We must invest with the right attitude in the spiritual development and nourishment of ourselves and our families. And we must invest in doing good for our brothers and sisters. This is interesting, verses 9 and 10. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of the faith." Obviously there are many ways to do good for someone. But the good Paul is talking about here relates to charitable giving. Again, that's confirmed by a parallel passage, a passage we've already begun. continuing in second Corinthians nine verses eight through 12, we read, "And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it is written, "He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness abides forever." Now, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. In Galatians, Paul tells us to not lose heart in doing good. And he promises we will reap for doing so, as long as we don't grow weary and give up. And in 2 Corinthians, he tells us what we will reap. We'll be enriched so we will have more to give away. Did you catch that? We'll be enriched so we'll have more to give away. And God will be praying. Through his abounding grace, God meets our needs so we can help meet the needs of others. And as we sow liberally, he multiplies our seeds so we can give even more. Now, obviously, there is overwhelming need in the world. And God has not promised to eradicate poverty. Only politicians do that. In fact, Jesus said there will always be poor among us and that we would always have the opportunity to do good. So even with his blessing, we will never be able to meet all the needs in the world. But we will be able to meet the needs of the saints. That's why Paul adds, especially to those who are of the household of faith, those who have become related to us by a common faith. Since our resources are limited, and even God's provision for the poor has its limits and its stipulations, we should first give to our brothers and sisters who are in need. Charity does begin at home. It begins within your family, the church. Now, that's not to suggest that we should never give outside the church to public charities, but it does establish the priority of meeting needs in the church first and making sure that our brothers and sisters are provided for. So how do we do that? We do it by giving through the church. Most of our spiritual investments can and probably should be made through the local church. That's where you are taught. That's where much of your spiritual feeding takes place. And that's where your brothers are. The local church is usually the best place to make your spiritual investments. And if the church is faithful, you should be able to trust the elders to distribute your spiritual investments wisely. They will see to it that the flock is provided for, that the preachers are paid, that the members are spiritually fed, and that the brothers and sisters in need are cared for. They will also examine needs outside of the local church and see to it that missionaries and Christian organizations that merit our support are supported. That brings us to the bottom line. How much should be invested in our spiritual portfolio? You know, we don't live under the law. So it would be wrong to legislate what everyone must give. But the principle of tithing, giving 10% of your gross, preceded the law. And I think it is still a valid guideline for today. In fact, the prophet Malachi said God's people were robbing him, yet they didn't tithe. In Malachi 3, 8 through 10, we read, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The idea of robbing God should be a wake-up call to anyone who doesn't tithe. But no one should miss the promise here as well. God invites us to test him in this matter of giving. And he promises that if we'll bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, he'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until it overflows. If you're having financial problems, I invite you to take God at his word. If you'll make wise spiritual investments, and God opens up the windows of heaven for you, your financial problems will soon be over. But never forget that if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. And if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. The key to successful spiritual investing is trusting in the goodness and provision of God and a willingness to surrender your all to him. We sing that quite often. I surrender all. One way to see if we're speaking the truth is to look at our checkbook. Are we surrendering all that we have and all that we are to him? That doesn't mean we give everything to the church. (laughs) It means we acknowledge his lordship and his provision. We trust him. We honor him. And we make the spiritual investments that make all the difference in our life, in the lives of our family, and in the church and the ministry we share. I surrender all. Let's stand and sing that together.